You're listening to Results Don't Lie, a legal drama podcast about landmark cases in America. This is episode two of Kuhn v. Walden, Building the Case. Insofar as Dr. Walden knew or should have known that prescribing enormous quantities and increasingly enormous quantities of opioid medications placed his patient at risk, and the risk that it placed him at was very serious risk, up to and including death, he did so recklessly, and I think in defiance of what every practicing doctor with ascriptive authority has to do when they make an assessment of whether to use a narcotic analgesic. If one sentence could sum up the four years of hell Brian Kuhn and his wife Michelle endured, it might be that one. Those words were spoken during the deposition of Dr. Paul Jennison, a practicing internal medicine physician and chief executive officer of Yale Health, the health system affiliated with Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. He was talking about the thousands of opioid pills Brian Kuhn had been prescribed for his chronic back pain by his physician, Dr. Henry Walden. Dr. Jennison's medical opinion would be the foundation of attorney Tim Cronin and Johnny Simon's legal case against Brian's doctor and his hospital system, one of the first cases of its kind to try to hold a physician responsible for his patient's opioid addiction. This case, Kuhn v. Walden, would set a legal precedent that helped curb the opioid epidemic when it was decided in 2016. Its impact is changing opioid prescribing practices to this day. Setting a precedent means doing something that has never been done before. I asked Tim and Johnny how they started to build their attack on overprescribing opioids within the context of medical malpractice, their area of expertise. Were cases like this being tried across the country? I mean, from what I understand, this was you guys kind of broke ground with this. Not really. Uh, you know, not in the civil realm like this. Usually you hear of these cases in the context of the federal government taking action against a prescriber or a doctor for, you know, overprescribing opioids, for, you know, fraudulently billing Medicaid for overprescribing opioids. That's usually the context in which, you know, these cases were brought in the civil realm. We really haven't been able to find anything that's that was before this really similar to ours in any respect. Uh, there's one-off cases of, you know, a doctor gave pills to someone, and they went home and they took them and overdosed. Uh, but as far as the the length of time and the amount of opioids, and just on a chronic basis with the injury being where the claim is, they turned him into a drug addict and not an overdose death case. And you have to remember, have to remember he didn't overdose not one time. Uh, you know, didn't have emergency room visits when he had overdosed on the pills. He wasn't dead. And by uh, the time we filed the case, he had gone to rehab and gotten clean. So he was off of them. It was just about these four and a half years that were lost from his life. And the lingering effects that it had on his family, because him and his wife, they lost their relationship and they split and they ended up getting divorced and they just had a little girl. So, you know, that affects her too. Tim and Johnny saw an opportunity to make this case bigger than just Brian and Michelle Kuhn. The Kuhns represented a national opioid epidemic that was exploding because there was no incentive to stop it. According to the CDC, 28,647 Americans died from opioid overdose in 2014. That set a new record. The Washington Post reported, 
Despite increased public efforts to combat opioid abuse, the number of deaths from heroin overdoses surged by 28% in 2014, and fatal overdoses from prescription painkillers climbed by 16.3%. So physicians were aware of the problem. Realistically, anyone who watched the evening news or had a large circle of friends was aware of the problem. But proving in a court of law that a physician was responsible for the rapid prescribing behavior that was poisoning the nation was extremely difficult. Why? Because everyone, except the addicts, the real victims, was making big money. Innocent people who got addicted were taking the blame, and there was no punishment in place to deter overprescribing behavior. So let's take a look at the law to learn what it takes to penalize negligent behavior. A medical malpractice case must prove three basic elements. That the treatment fell below the standard of care. That the error or negligence caused or contributed to harm to the patient. And that the harm deserved damages or some form of compensation. And all these elements must be proven within a reasonable degree of medical certainty. That's the standard a jury must decide on. So that's what Tim and Johnny had to prove to establish a legal mandate that might put the brakes on the runaway opioid crazy train. So there were murmurings. I mean, I think the original question was, you know, did you try this as a medical malpractice case or a negligence case? I mean... We, sure, we had to prove the elements of negligence, but we thought that given the conduct, that it amounted, given the problems with damages, the level of what we needed to focus on was the conduct, right? We really, we tried it and worked it up more as a punitive damages case. Let's punish and put a stop to the, this societal problem. Then this is about giving money to Brian Coon. Right. It's so, about punishing this conduct and stopping it. There were really like kind of three pillars that we felt we had to establish uh, to win our case. And one was just from a really basic standpoint that this was a way that a healthcare provider can commit malpractice. Um, that, that over prescribing opioids can be negligent, uh, that there are situations where too much is prescribed. And then once we had that as a, a foundation to say, and these amounts in this case given the type of pain he had, were just completely outrageous. And then uh, that was the second pillar. The third one was then just we had to demonstrate how this destroyed a life, uh, how this had destroyed not just uh, the life of the man who had been given the pills, but also um, destroyed his family unit. You know, it's one thing to drive uh, 80 miles an hour on a highway. It's another to do 80 miles an hour through a school zone, Right. And if you're in a school zone, you're doing 80 miles an hour, people are going to look at it a little bit differently. That's kind of how I saw Dr. You know, Walden's conduct. It's not just he's overprescribing pills. He's massively overprescribing pills in the middle of what the medical community knows is the worst epidemic in the history of modern medicine. But there was an elephant in the room. Brian Kuhn had asked Dr. Walden for these pills, and he wasn't dead. He'd had four surgeries on his back after he left Dr. Walden, so he'd obviously been suffering serious pain. He was off the pills and going to work every day. He was a recovering addict and still in therapy. Would a jury want to give a large sum of damages money to an addict? 
I had serious concerns uh, about the potential value in the case and the chances of success. And some of the reasons, uh, first of all, was nobody had really tried this before, to my knowledge, before we did it. We were in the position of asking a jury to award money damages to a person who we were admitting had an addiction to narcotics. And not only, you know, there's not economic damages, um, you know, there were no lost wages, there's not really medical bills. But in addition to that, we, we were concerned, or I was concerned, about people worrying if we give money to somebody who has a drug addiction problem, it might actually make their life worse. I mean, they might go back to having a drug problem and blow on drugs and it could hurt them. So that was one of the concerns I had. Uh, and, um, you know, I think this was really the first case of its kind in the country where we were suing a doctor for overprescribing narcotic pain medication simply because the client became addicted um, when there had been no overdose or death. I mean, I'd heard of overdose or death cases and cases against like pharmacies or the pharma companies, but not doctors. And, and, to that point, what, what I think what you mean by that, Tim, is, you know, every once in a while you'll see in the news where, uh, you know, the DEA or uh, the Justice Department brings uh, lawsuits against doctors who are running, you know, pill mills, right, and uh, will indict those doctors and pursue a, a civil case either under a fraud statute or the Medicaid fraud issue, but very rarely, uh, and, and I didn't, I could not find one, uh, will you see a patient suing his doctor for taking pills that the patient is requesting yeah and just the damages are i became a drug addict um he was clean by the time we filed it but you know he would always have cravings uh it put a strain on his marriage Uh, our client didn't remember much from the four years he was on the pills the question is look here you are you have filed this lawsuit you took these pills right Uh, You asked for them, right? Are you telling us you weren't honest with your doctor? The defense would certainly pounce on that. Tim and Johnny knew it was a potential landmine in the case. They had to diffuse that fact with overwhelming evidence that the massive amount of medication Dr. Walden prescribed pushed Brian into addiction. And in the upcoming depositions, when Brian, Michelle, and Dr. Jennison faced intense questioning from defense attorneys armed with their own spin on the story, it was going to be tough to prove. And so, you know, we'd heard of cases on the, you know, civil enforcement criminal side, but the MedMal case, right, I mean, it was, it was a question in our, it was, we're going to try to do something new. Trying something new in the legal world requires nimble thinking and a mountain of evidence. Evidence is obtained in the discovery phase. What's discovery? When a lawsuit is filed, all named parties have the right to conduct discovery, a formal investigation to find out the facts in the case. This information is obtained in a methodical cascade of pre-trial demands for production of documents, depositions of parties and potential witnesses, written interrogatories, which are questions and answers written under oath, written requests for factual admissions, and the petitions and motions employed to enforce discovery rights if someone isn't really eager to release some damning documentation. Both sides must share everything they obtain in discovery. It's the law. And that usually happens, except in this case, when some very critical information seemed to be missing from the medical records. But let's get back to how discovery is supposed to go. The theory behind these broad rights of discovery 
is that all parties will go to trial with as much knowledge as possible and that neither party should be able to keep secrets from the other. The prep work going in was, you know, writing the motions in limine, doing the deposition designations, you know, really crafting what the case was going to be about, right? Because once you get to trial, it's too late to prepare anything, right? Unlike the TV lawyer shows, where vigilant attorneys find the case-busting clue while leafing through a few pages of documents during a break in the courtroom drama, discovery is a tedious process. Every single piece of information must be requested. It doesn't just appear in the law office, all organized and cataloged. If you don't know what to ask for, you don't get it. So Tim and Johnny started making lists of what information they might need for themselves and for their experts like Dr. Jennison to evaluate so they would have the facts upon which the case would be built. Then your evidence in your medical malpractice case is what? Your medical records. How are you going to get them? How are you going to make sure you have all of them? Or how are you going to make sure that you have the records you need to, eval to bring them to a lawyer and evaluate a case? Next, once you bring them to a lawyer, what does he have to do with them? He has to go through them, review them, and send them to an expert to review those medical records to make sure uh, that, to, to evaluate whether or not you have a case, right? That takes time. That can take, take up, to, I've seen it take up to three months, six months, or even eight months, depending on, you know, what the case is about and how busy the, you know, the expert is. You know, it's not, it's not a quick turnaround. It's not something you can go to a lawyer and they can know right away to file that case. It takes time to review it if you're doing it right, which in medical malpractice cases, it, you, it, it's a two-year statute. Tim and Johnny were going to do it right. They had skin in the game. After months of research, they formulated their basic trial strategy, show actual damages by proving that Brian was pushed deeper and deeper into an opioid addiction by his escalating prescription of opioids, becoming a shadow of his former self. The defense was going to try to discredit Brian and Michelle at every turn, refute Dr. Jennison's opinions, and spotlight Dr. Walden's reputation as a caring, compassionate physician. Cases like this one, the little guy against the big corporation, are Tim and Johnny's passion. Well, you know, as a lawyer, if you don't, if you're not at least enjoying somewhat what you're doing, I don't think you can be doing as good of a job as you can. Um, you know, it's not all fun. Sitting, at, sitting in your office writing a brief isn't fun. Uh, drafting discovery isn't fun. But trying cases, if you want to be a really good trial lawyer, you have to enjoy it. You have to feel like you have to be excited every day when you're going there um, to be accomplishing something doing what I think it, it is that I was born to do and all of my training and education has allowed me to do. So in all of our cases, you know, our number one goal is to try to make our clients' lives better, try to, try to put them in a better position than they were when they walked in our door and set them up as well as we can for the rest of their life. We can't put them back in the position they were before they got hurt, but um, we can try to put them in as good a position as we can going forward. But a dual goal, and really not just a dual goal for us, but I think also for a lot of our clients, is to try to make sure it doesn't happen again to somebody else. And unfortunately, the only way often to get companies, corporations, businesses to listen and pay attention and make a difference is if they know there's a threat of getting hit with a big number in a verdict. 
uh, I fight extremely hard. I always try to be the most prepared person in the room, whether it's at a hearing, at trial, in a deposition, uh, the smallest of things, I always try to make sure I am more prepared than the person sitting on the other side of the table from me. Tim got to face the person on the other side of the table for the first time at Brian and Michelle's deposition on July 22, 2015, almost two and a half years after they walked through the tall glass doors of the Simon Law Firm. The Coons had come back to the firm that July morning to sit in a sleek white conference room to give their depositions. Part of the discovery process, depositions provide sworn testimony under oath, which helps both sides prepare their case for trial. Everything is recorded verbatim by a certified court reporter and can be used in trial to contradict or impeach a witness, to refresh a witness's memory, or to be read into the record as testimony if the witnesses cannot appear in court. Depositions can take hours, sometimes days, and they are highly stressful, not only for the witness, but for their attorney. In fact, some attorneys feel depositions are the most nerve-wracking part of the process, fraught with danger and opportunity. Because if a witness says the right thing, your case gets more solid. But if they say the wrong thing, your case can be over. And you can prepare your client for deposition, try to make them comfortable with the process, educate them on what to expect, and be there for them to object to aggressive or abusive inquiries. But you can't tell them what to say when opposing counsel asks really tough questions. So when Brian Kuhn sat down in the white leather and chrome chair in the conference room at 9 a.m. on July 22, 2015, with Tim, the defense attorney, and the court reporter to give his sworn deposition, Tim was nervous. Our clients' depositions, you know, we didn't really know what we had yet. We were just trying to survive them while they were being attacked for, you know, hours and hours on this is your responsibility. You wanted the pills. You really had really that back pain. Yeah. You, you said you needed them to keep working. You kept asking for increasing doses, kept asking for the pills earlier. And, and you know, they were tough questions. There were 14 exhibits to be entered into the record. Hundreds of pages of medical record. Patient intake forms from other physicians Brian had seen as he tried to either get off the pills or find relief for his continuing back pain notes from the rehab hospital, and Brian's personal diary entries that he wrote when he went through withdrawal. And lots of them didn't help Brian at all. When the defense questioning started, Brian's answer to dozens of questions regarding his life and his medications from 2008 to 2012 was, I don't recall. It sounded evasive, like he was hiding something, and it made the case start to sound pretty weak. Then, Late in the afternoon, after hours of questioning, the defense introduced an exhibit from Brian's intake to rehab, where Michelle took him after he told her he'd put a gun in his mouth. The questionnaire asked, do you often feel unhappy or depressed? Brian had checked, no. The next question was, have you ever been treated for psychiatric illness or a nervous condition? Again, Brian answered, no. But we know Brian had been treated for depression as a teen, and he claimed he was dangerously depressed for years because of the opioids. He also claimed he was suicidal. 
So Brian obviously lied about this and about other side effects he now claimed he was experiencing at the time, but he denied on these medical questionnaires. More than one questionnaire, actually. That could be used by the defense to plant serious doubt with the jury. What else had Brian lied about? Did he lie to his boss, his wife, or his friends? Did he lie to his own parents? Well, he just admitted he did. You know, it's not like I walk in the house and say, Hi, Mom and Dad, I'm a drug addict. I, it's just not something I discussed with them. So that, to me, is, in essence, lying to them. Bryant confessed that he lied numerous times. And even worse, the defense produced medical records that documented Dr. Walden, quote, had a long discussion concerning tolerance and dependence, unquote, with Brian on more than one occasion. Dr. Walden's medical records also reported that Brian was aware of the danger of addiction and that he and Brian agreed that the benefits outweighed the risks. Well, the Vicodin was prescribed to me by my physician, who I trust. He was my doctor. He said that the benefits outweighed the risk with this. They're minimal, so, you know, he prescribed it to me. I trusted him, and, you know, to make the right decision. So, you know, yeah, I I took the medication. It was prescribed by my doctor. Other notes in the medical records report Brian was tolerating the medication well. And another intake form from a chiropractor Brian saw for his back pain said the only things Brian was doing to reduce his pain was sleep and rest. Brian didn't mention medication at all. Tim had a bad feeling that the defense was confident they could convince the jury that Brian was untruthful and that he was trying to get money from his doctor for taking medicine he knew could be dangerous and that it was Brian's own behavior that caused his addiction. Tim's counter was going to be that Brian's family tried to stop it. You know, we're going to talk about what happened with Brian and how he ended up getting off of his own volition with You know, his wife's encouragement, strong encouragement, I think. Brian did make some pretty strong statements to support his case. From 2008 on, Brian's dose of opioids was never reduced. Quite the contrary, Brian's doses were systematically upped and escalated by Dr. Walden. Here, Brian describes Dr. Walden's continuous prescription cycle. I went through my medication in two weeks. He prescribed me morphine sulfate to keep me going through the withdrawals until the end of the month when he wrote me another script for OxyContin and OxyCodone and Vicodin. He'd write me a script for morphine to cover the other two weeks till he could get me back on the OxyContin. And this was, you know, every month. I was a ghost in my own home for the years I was on the medication. I... I lost years of my life with my wife. I missed the first three years of my daughter's life. This avalanche of opioids continued until the pharmacies refused to fill Brian's massive prescriptions. Why? Well, let's get these pills in some perspective. In 2008, Brian's average dose was 54 milligrams per day. The following year, Dr. Walden increased Brian's dosage up to 222 milligrams per day. In 2010, 
he more than doubled the dose to 577 milligrams per day. In 2011, it reached 1,211 milligrams per day. Until finally, in 2012, Brian was taking, on the advice of his own doctor, 1,522 morphine-equivalent milligrams a day of narcotics, when most medical publications were recommending caution when exceeding 100 MEDs per day. That is over 15 times the recommended daily dosage. And people have died on doses of just 40 MEDs. Dr. Walden prescribed a combination of 37,271 Schedule II narcotic opioid pills over four years, all for lower back pain. In his deposition on that steamy July afternoon, Brian relayed one terrifying episode when his wife, Michelle, went to their regular pharmacy to get his meds. Then my wife came in the next time, and they weren't going to fill it. And I, uh, I don't know what happened, but they decided that the amount of medication I was on, my wife ended up calling while I was at work saying, I should be dead. The pharmacist says, you should not be breathing with the amount of medication that your doctor has you on. My wife is in tears calling me, you know, hysterical, saying, I'm going to die. And she says, the pharmacy won't fill your prescription. And, you know, I, I don't know what we're going to do because at that point, he was prescribing me 600 oxycodone a month at 15 milligrams. He was prescribing me 240 60 milligram Oxycontin every month and 180 number 10 Vicodin every month. And that was so much the pharmacist lady thought originally I was in hospice, that I was dying. And because, you know, I needed so much medication. When she found out I was taking it for back pain and was still working, that was it. She wasn't going to fill it. Apparently she called Dr. Walden and spoke with him, you know, and I, I can't say what was said, but I know it wasn't, you know, a friendly phone call to say, you're doing a good job, Doc, you know, because she refused to fill the script. So Dr. Walden called my wife and said, I have another script for you here. Please do not return to that pharmacy. Think about this. A pharmacist whose job is to monitor medications for patient safety saw the massive prescriptions for Brian and was so concerned about them, she refused to fill them. What would you think in that situation? Yet Michelle was told by Dr. Walden to just ignore the pharmacist's dire warnings. So Brian didn't have to go to pharmacies anymore. He just picked up more pills down the hall from Dr. Walden's office in room 207, where no pharmacist could step in to stop the flood of medication. Brian just made a call and got more meds without seeing Dr. Walden or any medical professional. I could call him on the phone and say, look, this medicine is not working as well as it used to, you know. Uh, I took a couple extra tablets and that, you know, that seemed to help. And he'd be, okay, well, I'll write you out a script for that and you can come up to the office and pick it up at the front window. And that was a normal thing to have occurred. I, I didn't have to go into the office to get an increase in my medicine. 
But no one can stay on constantly increasing doses of opioids forever. Brian knew he was in trouble and begged for help. In 2012, I had asked Dr. Walden, I sat in his office crying, asking the man to take me off of the pain meds. I was out of control. I couldn't take them as prescribed, and he wanted me to wait a couple more weeks. You know, he said, you've been on them for this long, what's a couple more weeks? He would not refer me to treatment. The attorneys in the sleek white conference room were silent when Brian recalled what happened next when he reached the breaking point in 2012. I, um, well, besides going through a month's worth of medication in two weeks... I sat on the edge of my bed and stuck a gun in my mouth because I saw no way out of this. And I sat there and I thought, you know, it's the easy way out, you know, but my wife and my daughter are the only reason I didn't shoot myself because I needed to, you know, I couldn't leave them with that. Brian was hopeless and broken. He shamefully admitted to Michelle that he'd gotten out the gun, and she put him in the car to head to the nearest emergency room, where he was finally referred for addiction treatment. It was Brian's wife, Michelle, not Dr. Walden, who got Brian into rehab, where the horrific unpleasantness of withdrawal plunged him even deeper into despair. I was in a locked ward when I was first admitted there. It was hell. I was coming down from, uh, yeah, I, I was withdrawing from my medication. It felt like the muscles were pulling off of my bones for the first day I was there. I just remember a whole lot of pain for that first day. I, uh, I hurt incredibly bad. Brian also said that the rehab staff, the people he was relying on to save his life and help him through withdrawal, didn't trust him because they thought he'd lied about his medications. So on top of his pain, his isolation, and his fear, Brian felt he had absolutely no one on his side. They didn't believe me when I told them what I was being prescribed. They're like, no, you weren't being prescribed that much, you know. No, I was, and they came to realize it. And it's bad when the staff in the treatment center doesn't believe you. It just, it was, it was mind-boggling the amount of medication I had been on. I didn't realize how much medicine I had been on. Brian's emotional deposition testimony ended at 4.09 p.m. He had been questioned by the defense for over six hours. The transcript is 219 pages. Brian's day was done. But Tim's wasn't. 13 minutes later, at 4.22 p.m., Michelle Kuhn walked into the same white conference room to give her deposition. And while Brian couldn't remember much from 2008 to 2012, when he said, I don't recall, he really meant it. Michelle remembered everything. Michelle painted a chilling picture of Brian's downward spiral his focus on getting the pills, taking the pills, refilling the pills. She remembers calling Dr. Walden about trying to get Brian's medications reduced after the pharmacist told her that amount of medication could kill him. 
and she remembers Dr. Walden's unsupportive response. He told me he was going to write a new prescription for me to take it somewhere else because they were not going to fill it. And I made a comment about how he needed to cut Brian back on the medication. So he advised me that he would write the prescription for two weeks. And I told him that that is not how you cut somebody down on their medication, that he needed to do it by increments on the dosage. Michelle disagreed with Dr. Walden, but he was the doctor. He kept writing the prescriptions for hydrocodone, also known as Vicodin, Oxycontin, Oxycodone, and now Valium and Xanax on top of the other medications to help Brian through the beginnings of withdrawal when the opioids ran out. And Michelle couldn't do anything about it. While Brian was totally obsessed with his meds, Michelle was trying to take care of a newborn and do whatever she could to keep her husband from overdosing. I was still working, and I had to change my hours at work so I could be home before him so he wouldn't find his medication and get into it. I used to hide his medication for him. I had to change my hours at work because he would come home, find it, take some, and put it right back where it was. And I had no clue that he even found it. Michelle tried to hide Brian's medicine and control his addiction by just giving him a day's supply at a time and locking up the rest. I mean, she tried, um, but he'd find him. Uh, and he'd take him sometimes a month's worth of medication in two weeks. Uh, she didn't know what to do. She'd call to say, you know, help. Brian went through his medicine early. And a nurse would call back and just say, pick up another script, room 207. And sometimes Dr. Walden prescribed morphine to fill in the gaps between prescriptions because pharmacies wouldn't fill the scripts. Which I thought was the evidence that we had of the pernicious, malicious misconduct. Was that? Was you know, and what we mean by filling the gaps is, you know, the prescription is from A to B. You know, Mr. Kuhn would go through his prescriptions before he got to point B. And, you know, what happens when you don't take these pills, anyone, you know, who takes them or, or has taken them will tell you, is you're going to withdrawal. And that doesn't feel very good. Uh, sweating, vomiting, sick, you get flu-like symptoms. And so because under federal law, Dr. Walden couldn't prescribe another, you know, 30-day prescription, He'd fill a six-day, ten-day script of morphine. And that that kind of really... Which were not in his own medical records. Which were not in his medical records. They were just in the pharmacy records. Which we'll get to later. As Johnny said, we'll get to that later. What did come up is that Brian would go crazy if he didn't get his meds and was completely out of it when he did. I would go in almost every night to make sure that he was still breathing because I was concerned about the amount of medication he was on. I would wake up in the middle of the night and find him on the front porch where he fell asleep while smoking a cigarette. It was after my daughter was born. He fell asleep while driving me and my daughter home from his parents' house. I know my husband spoke to Dr. Walden about trying to flush books down the toilet in the middle of the night. When he was out of the medication, or it wasn't working, he was a whole other man and neither one of those men were somebody I would leave my daughter with. So at that time, I was doing what I had to do to try and maintain somewhat of a normal life. But then the defense asked Michelle the loaded question. Was the man your husband was when he had the medications and they were working, was that preferable to when he didn't have the medications and they weren't working? Michelle's answer? Yes. Yes. Although that answer didn't help Michelle's case, it was the truth. 
While the huge doses of medication made Brian easier to live with, he was also drugged out, unable to connect with or care for his wife and daughter. Michelle called him a zombie. Every picture of him from the time of her birth until she was a few years old, every picture of the two of them was him in an altered state. The look in his eyes, or him passed out on the couch when our daughter was trying to cuddle up to him, and she still had not bonded with him enough to let me easily leave the house with just the two of them there, because it was always me doing it all for her. He was out of it a lot, as in zone to the point where I did not feel comfortable having him care for a newborn. And sadly for the Coons, that still hasn't changed, even after Brian's rehab. My daughter is going to be six on Sunday. She still doesn't know the man that I chose to be her father. I would never leave her alone with him for any of those years. So to this day, I cannot walk out of the house without her, without her crying the entire time I'm gone when she's with her father. I have gone the last six years doing the best I can with my daughter by myself. All I get is criticism. I get questioned about what I'm doing. All the years I did all the diaper changes. I did all the feedings. I can probably count on my fingers how many bottles he gave her. He's never gone and played with her in the snow. I have been both mother and father. Michelle carried a heavy burden, and it got heavier. The defense attorney was trying to make the point that Brian was getting along fine. After all, he was still working. So he asked Michelle if she could remember a time where Brian could not participate in the family when he was unable to because of the meds. The biggest example I can give you is the day I came home from having surgery for ovarian cancer. I had to sit on the floor and change my daughter's diaper because his back was hurting and he was medicated. Ovarian cancer. She had to carry that too. Yeah. And so because um, she couldn't push it away. She felt alone, unwanted, unloved, like she'd lost the man she married and they never got it back. Michelle went through everything Brian did, but she went through it all with sober eyes. Right. Uh, whereas he didn't really have a memory of it. You know, and it, it, I, I always felt, you know, during the case, looking at it, uh, you know, it, it, it might be hard to feel sorry for the addict or the person who's having the problems, but it, it's not hard to feel sorry for the person who's, no. you know, dealing with them. The defense attorney then asked Michelle about the day Brian put the gun in his mouth. He tried to cast doubt on the story, pointing out that Michelle didn't actually see Brian with the gun. So was she sure it actually happened? Michelle claimed she believed her husband's story and knew he was desperate. He had given up. He managed to take a month's worth of medication within two weeks. And the day that I took him to the emergency room, he had been sitting on the edge of the bed with one of the guns. I had a young daughter at home. I called everybody I could trying to figure out what I was supposed to do. Michelle says she grabbed the baby, put her in the car, and took Brian to the nearest emergency room. But they didn't help. I took him to St. Mary's ER that day and they released him. So, I called my husband's parents and asked them for the money to pay for rehab because he might not have pulled the trigger that day, but I lost him long before that. I was there when they took him to the back, but I already knew that they would not be able to put him in the inpatient there. So I had to go home and figure out what to do with my daughter. I had to find a place for her to go so I could be here. I had to figure out somebody that could help me save my husband. 
So while he was in the emergency room at St. Mary's, I was running around trying to find a place for my daughter to be because she could not be around him that day. The staff at St. Mary's recommended a St. Louis addiction treatment facility that might admit Brian immediately if he could prove he was a danger to himself or others. They did admit Brian. He started detox immediately. And that was hell for both of them. It was horrible. He was so skinny. He looked like he was dying. Michelle told the attorneys what it was like when she brought their daughter to see her dad while he was still in rehab, finally off the drugs for the first time in years. But what she saw was heartbreaking. He seemed to be doing better. I took my daughter with me because I didn't have anywhere else for her to be. So me and my daughter went out there to celebrate mine and my husband's wedding anniversary. And while we were there, we were outside and my daughter took off running. And the look on his face, he just looked at me and he said, she can run. It was the first time he had ever seen our daughter through clear eyes. We had to cut the visit short because it was too much for him. At 7.17 p.m., the defense stopped asking Michelle questions. She told her story well, although she did admit that Brian had lied to her and that he was better off when he was on his meds. Tim and Johnny were relieved that the client depots were done. But the expert depots, the ones that would make or break the case, were coming up in six months. And in the legal world, that isn't much time to prepare for the biggest fight of your career. So I had serious concerns about the case kind of from the beginning. Um, But for me, the light bulb really went on about the potential of the case after our experts depot. And it was a Dr. Paul Jennison, who's an internal medicine doctor at, at Yale Health. But it's the director of Yale Health, which is a teaching hospital affiliated with Yale University. And we had retained him uh, because he supported our case. Dr. Paul Jennison had one job, focus on the cold, hard facts of the medical records. To prepare his opinion, Dr. Jennison received three shipments of documents, 356 medical records from Dr. Walden's files regarding his treatment of Brian Coombe from 2008 to 2012, sworn depositions from Michelle and Brian Coon and Dr. Walden, medical records from Brian's addiction recovery treatment, pharmacy records from two pharmacy chains, and MRIs from six doctors regarding his back pain. Remember, all this started with a muscle injury while Brian dried off after a shower back in 2008. Dr. Jennison also received all the CDC guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain. Hundreds of pages of documents to review. And while Dr. Jennison spent hours reviewing Brian's records and formulating his opinion, Johnny prepared for the deposition. Attorneys want to be absolutely sure they know what their expert is going to say in deposition. Because cases can evaporate in deposition if an expert makes a mistake or caves in on their opinion when questioned by highly skilled opposing counsel. So Johnny Simon followed another of the Simon Law Firm's creeds, be the most prepared person in the room. In medical malpractice cases, uh, the plaintiff or plaintiffs must support uh, his or her or their case with expert testimony. So this case was no different. Dr. Jennison is a primary care physician at Yale Health. Uh, He is an expert in how narcotics should and should not be prescribed. He's a doctor 
And, you know, going into this, uh, we didn't really know, I, I didn't know much about opioids, narcotics. And, you know, you're dealing with a doctor and having conversations with a doctor, someone who's been prescribing opioids for 30 years uh, in a clinical setting. You know, Dr. Jennison has probably forgotten more about narcotics than I will ever know. Uh, but as an attorney responsible for the case, I know more about the facts. So how did I prep him? Uh, I really wanted to get on his level. And that meant conducting an exhaustive literature search prior to the deposition as it concerns opioids and how they should and should not be prescribed. So we had the literature and we were, you know, uh, we, we were both on the same page as far as, uh, you know, our understanding as how we got here. And then we put it in the context of Mr. Kuhn, knowing that he hadn't had any overdoses, knowing that he hadn't died, which I asked Dr. Jennison, how, how is it possible that someone can take these amounts and still live and work? And he's, it's the phenomenon of tolerance. But what, what I did with him is show him the chart that we had created that gave not only the number of pills, but when the prescriptions were written and the total amount of morphine equivalents. When he initially saw it, he was shocked. But then when we start putting the charts together and kind of graphically illustrate, it's one thing to get the information from the medical records or prescription records. It's quite another thing to see it graphically. And every date that they were prescribed and how much and the overlapping prescriptions and the early prescriptions, it's, it, yeah, I mean, it was, we ended up putting charts together for trial that really showed a shocking story. And, and so based on our conversations and, you know, the existing literature, uh, what I hoped going into the depot, uh, the deposition is really illustrating and showing uh, the opposing counsel who up until that point, I don't think, you know, thought the case was worth anything. They didn't seem to be worried about the case. Uh, I, I just wanted to show and illustrate the magnitude of the breach of the standard of care. And that this really wasn't just a breach of the standard of care case. This was definitely a punitive damage case with a conscious, reckless disregard for safety. And, you know, Dr. Jennison, uh, when he got in the deposition, and, and I think most attorneys will agree with this, that, you know, you're never going to beat the expert on the substance, right? The experts probably, you know, based on that they've been doing it for 30 yeah. years, is going to know more about the medicine than you. Unless you can find something they've written that contradicts what they said or find, you know, a ton of, but usually you're not going to get them to, to agree to change their position. And so Dr. Jennison, you know, with the facts and the literature and, and kind of the, you know, epidemic had no problem illustrating just how incredibly dangerous the defendant's conduct was for Mr. Kuhn and his family and why it was reprehensible. <laughs> It was Dr. Jennison's role to explain to the jury exactly how far the defendants had deviated from what was safe and reasonable in the standard of care. This deposition was crucial. And let's peek behind the curtain here. Experts don't study documents for days on end and testify in legal cases for free. Dr. Jennison was being paid by Tim and Johnny, $550 an hour to be exact. But this certainly wasn't his main source of income. Other physicians do make millions testifying. In fact, you'll meet one soon. But Dr. Jennison testified just a few times a year or in cases he deemed important. He thought this one was. Dr. Jennison's deposition was taken in a small court reporter's office in New Haven, Connecticut, on February 1, 2016 about two years after Tim and Johnny reached out to him for his initial opinion in the case. Dr. Jennison's deposition transcript is 129 pages long. I read every word of it, but there isn't an audio recording, so someone else is reading Dr. Jennison's testimony here. It was the chronic daily increasing 
and constantly escalating prescription of opioid narcotics to really quite astronomical doses. That is the basis of my opinion. The average daily dose was 217 morphine equivalents in 2009. And then the following year, it's double. The following year, double again. I mean, those are getting to be extraordinary doses. A lot of the time that Mr. Kuhn was on these narcotic analgesics, he was at risk of dying from them, at risk of harming others, as, for example, driving unsafely, at risk of impairing his work life and personal life. The defense team tried to recover, tried to get Dr. Jennison to say that Dr. Walden's prescription levels were justified, that Brian was doing well. Dr. Jennison didn't take the bait. He painted a dark picture of Brian's helplessness. The patient's brain is literally marinating in narcotic analgesics. This is an altered state of mind. It's a textbook pattern of what happens to a patient who is being, I think, recklessly narcotized by his doctor. It has to have a bad outcome. It cannot end well. Remember, Tim and Johnny had three pillars to prove. That overprescribing opioids is negligent. That Dr. Walden did overprescribe opioids for Brian's back pain and that Brian and Michelle were significantly damaged by this harm. They believed Dr. Jennison had provided strong evidence to support these claims. But Tim and Johnny also wanted to paint a dark picture of the national scope of the opioid problem for the jury, to drive home the fact that Brian was only one of thousands of innocent people whose lives were destroyed by opioids, and that something needed to be done. Johnny wanted to get the sheer magnitude of the opioid crisis in the record. Dr. Jennison's comments did that, and also introduced a key fact Tim and Johnny needed, that this type of behavior was prosecutable. These are extraordinarily high doses, and the fact that Dr. Walden was willing to go the sky is the limit on these extremely well-publicized, highly concerning Schedule II narcotics is, it's not just a question of standard of care. These are the doctors that lose their licenses and the DEA investigates. Most states have mechanisms to completely prevent doctors like Dr. Walden from doing this exact prescribing. And the reason for it is patient safety. This kills people. So, uh, Johnny, how did, how did, you were there at the depot, I wasn't. Uh, how did, did opposing counsel seem kind of stunned by how Dr. Jennison's presentation of his thoughts. I remember uh, the opposing lawyer looking at me almost as like, is this guy serious? He's going to come into a courtroom and say that another doctor should have his license revoked? Is that because for anyone who's listening, you it's hard to find doctors to testify against other doctors at all as a matter of principle. You know, we want to protect our own. I imagine it's the same in the legal malpractice realm. I'd I'd like to think not, but, you know, in medical malpractice, you don't find local experts. The local doctor down the street is not going to testify against the other one. Uh, There's existing business relationships and all kinds of things that prevent that. But I remember when, you know, Dr. Jennison, and and it was the manner, and, you know, you guys have heard it, it was the manner in which he delivered it. There was no hesitation. It was very confident. And, you know, in hindsight, it was because it was well-supported I couldn't contemplate, based on what I found, the literature, the standard of care, uh, Dr. Jennison's testimony, 
How are they going to defend this case with experts? Tens of thousands of people dying from these drugs. And I, I really had not – when I would hear about people getting you know, Vicodin or Percocet and I, I kind of knew what they were, I would only hear about it like you know, for 10 days following a surgery or something. But I really didn't know people were being chronically prescribed what equates to heroin um, as a lifetime for decades. Right. But the defense was able to bring in one very important fact. There were no legally binding guidelines on prescribing opioids. So although Dr. Jennison could say that Dr. Walden had not followed a recommended standard of care, he could not say that Dr. Walden had broken a law. Opioid dosage guidelines were very inconsistent. Pharmaceutical companies were claiming the drugs were safe, while many medical journals were begging physicians to reduce doses. Physicians in some states could rely on state medical board recommendations for guidance, but Missouri lags far behind the nation in opioid regulation. To this day, Missouri is the only state in the nation that does not have a statewide prescription drug monitoring program, or PDMP. In other states, the state health department would have been notified of the massive prescriptions and investigated, not in Missouri. And Dr. Walden's hospital system could, and probably should, have been monitoring their physicians too. But they didn't do that either. So convincing the jury that Dr. Walden had breached the standard of care and had harmed his patient, that was up to Dr. Jennison. But Tim and Johnny wanted a little backup on that key element of the case. We hired a psychologist to meet with and evaluate Brian. She diagnosed him with major depressive disorder, opioid withdrawal, opioid use disorder. This psychologist, Dr. Mary Fitzgibbons, helped solidify the foundation for Brian's damages. Now... They had three months to prepare for the defense depositions coming up in May. So we were on the attack, which is what we do best. And so, Tim, how many experts did they have? They had three experts, um, Dr. Guarino, Dr. Iskowitz, and Dr. Gunderson. They ended up not bringing Dr. Iskowitz uh, to trial for, for reasons of the things we found out about him were, were, were so disqualifying and bad that, 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 that they didn't bring him, which is shocking once you hear about what we found from the other <laughs> experts who did testify at trial, but they had to bring somebody. So, you know, the opioid epidemic exploded. Um, they had two uh, experts that had to get produced for a depot right at that time, and we'd been doing nothing but researching and finding everything we could to – to, to talk about how, I mean, in this environment, to be doing what happened to, to Brian is crazy. I really felt like, Johnny, and I don't know if you agree, I felt like we won the case with their experts. I, I think that's an understatement. I, uh, I think their experts made our case for us. I think that we could have not had an expert and we could have made our case with theirs. The defense depositions, physicians and family members testifying that Dr. Walden did no harm, and Tim and Johnny's tactical plan to flip those experts and undermine their testimony is coming up in the next episode of Results Don't Lie. Results Don't Lie is a true story podcast from the Simon Law Firm. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.